You're now listening to episode 60 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with John Kasman, host of the Target Markets Insight podcast and co-founder of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. He is also founder of Kasman Capital Group, where he's helped families invest over $70 million in multifamily apartments to create generational wealth. In this episode, we discuss the various aspects of choosing the right investment market, including whether or not to pick the property or the market first, job and population growth, supply and demand, and much more. And of course, we discuss how John handles accounting and taxes. Also, be sure to stick around as we're launching the new podcast format on today's episode that includes a debrief on the topic of selecting markets, as well as a Q&A segment where we answer questions from you, the listener. Do you have an efficient accounting system in place to track the performance of your rental portfolio? If not, this can be costing you hours in lost time, thousands of dollars in missed tax planning opportunities, and preventing you from making good financial decisions to grow your portfolio. But don't just take it from us. We've had many guests on the show from Jay Scott to Brian Burke and others that discuss the importance of having a good accounting system. Well, there's no need to struggle with bookkeeping and accounting any longer. The Real Estate CPA is an accounting advisory service where we will evaluate your current accounting system or set one up for you if you don't already have one. We will help you book retroactive transactions to ensure your books are clean and up to date. After that, we will set up automations for reoccurring transactions and set up tracking so that you can track the income and expenses of each of your properties separately. At the end of the engagement, we will provide you with two options. We can either train you or a staff member to run the system, or we can discuss what it looks like to outsource the accounting completely. Don't put this off any longer. It's time to get your accounting system in place so you can track the performance of your portfolio, make better financial decisions, and have more time to focus on what really matters. To get started, head over to therealestatecpa.com backslash become-client and fill out the form and we'll get back to you in one to three business days to schedule a free initial consultation. And without further ado, we'll jump right into today's episode. John, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a pretty strong background in marketing. I've been doing marketing for around 15 years, uh, coming out of school, went into marketing, worked for a lot of large companies, uh, doing advertising, promotions, different events, things like that. Uh, was on the client side of General Motors for a while before uh, moving back to the agency side and Really, you know, for me, multifamily was something I was always interested in. When I moved to Chicago back in 2011, I did so partially with a mindset that we would really start focusing on investing. Uh, so the next year, I bought a two-unit building. We saved our money and bought a three-unit building after that. We bought an eight-unit building, started doing a couple flips. And as we we're going through that process, we kept using all of our own money to invest. And I realized that there had to be a better way than simply saving up all your money for a year, buying a property, saving up all your money for the next year, buying a property. All of our money was tied up in equity in these assets. So at that point, we started learning more about partnering with other investors and uh, started to actually get into more of the syndications. Nice. Nice. Syndication is always a great way to scale a business. Uh, I know that's the route that uh, I always look to um, when I look at the real estate landscape. 
So we, we know you're host of the Target Markets Insights uh, podcast, and we're hoping to uh, you know help our listeners uh, determine how to choose a, a rental market to invest in. Uh, so I guess the first question is based on everything you've experienced, everything you've learned from the podcast. Uh, does it make more sense to identify a market first and then a property, or does it make more sense to identify a property and then vet the market? Uh, I would absolutely say the market first. And what I would say is really important for your listeners to understand is that more important than the MSA is the actual sub-market. And you can do it either way. I know folks who do it either way. But I think the point is you need to have uh, a couple of things in place. So when I say the, the sub-market is more important than the MSA, just because you're in the Dallas area and the Dallas area is growing crazy, there are rough parts of Dallas that you may not want to invest in, you know, and just because you're in a market that may not be growing at all, there are parts in that city that are certainly doing well and attracting business and seeing growth. So I think the point is to really understand the local level of what's happening and how to identify what's happening from a local standpoint, where's the drive going to come from, where are your your renters going to come from and understanding those aspects of it. So walk us through that. So how do you identify markets? What are some of the hard-hitting, I guess, metrics that you're looking at? Yeah. I mean, a couple things. One, you should always look in your backyard first, right? If you can invest in your backyard, then that's a great place to start. If for whatever reason that doesn't make sense, maybe you're in California and the laws aren't as friendly, uh, maybe the growth really isn't there, maybe it's an extremely expensive market, you start looking elsewhere. So I think the first thing you want to look for is growth. Population growth is one of the main things that investors are looking for. The other thing that you want to look for is job growth, because job growth and population growth kind of work hand in hand. Where the jobs go, people tend to follow. So you definitely want to make sure you look for population and job growth. The next thing you want to understand is how friendly is this from a business standpoint, as well as from a rental standpoint? Uh, Is it landlord friendly? Is it a friendly business environment? Uh, Will it continue to attract jobs? I think one mistake that a lot of investors make is they only look at the rearview mirror when it comes to these markets and these, these data points. So they look at the census data and they see, okay, you know, 10,000 people moved to this market. This is a growing market. And that's all fine and dandy. And you should certainly do that. But you also need to forecast forward. I mean, the whole point is really to predict what's going to happen for you in the future after you buy this property. So it's really important to understand what can you expect going forward. Now, certainly the past is a great indicator of what's likely, but you want to understand what were the dynamics that drove that growth so you can make sure that that's still in place. You know, if you're going on the submarket level, is this place, again, is it a friendly environment for business? Uh, if you really start to look at the Chamber of Commerce or maybe some of the Economic Development Councils, what kind of programs, incentives do they have in place to continue to spur business growth as opposed to a place where they're not really looking to grow or not really investing or creating those kind of incentives? So you really want to understand what's happening from a growth standpoint and what can you expect likely to go forward? And do you have any like hard and fast, maybe like back of the napkin rules, kind of like the 1% rule, right? Where it's not something that you should, you know, throw your weight behind, but it is a quick back of the napkin analysis if you want to use something like that. Do you have anything like that related to job growth, population growth, any of the other metrics that you use? You know, not not off the top of my head. I mean, I think the one thing you do is you just want to see growth, right? You just want to see it trending in the right direction. I don't care. If, for me, I don't care if it's small growth, if it's 1% or half a percent growth, I just want to see it trending in the right direction as far as people moving into a market. Um, because if that's the case, then I think that there's opportunity and you just need to weigh it 
accordingly. What I will say is that there are a lot of investors who won't say if they, you know if they want to keep it really simple, they'll say, "Hey, don't invest in a market if there's no job growth, if there's no population growth." I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you need to take all that information and make the best decisions accordingly. Because the flip side of all that growth is development, right? There are other investors who go in and see that growth and they want to invest. So you also have to look at, you know, are there new developers going in? Um, What are the cap rates? What are returns that you can expect? Because as other investors move into that space, now you have competition. So you may be able to go into a market where people aren't as excited about it for various reasons, and you might be able to crush it being in those markets because everyone's running to the same metro. So I don't want to say that there's a hard and fast rule. Uh, for me, I try to focus on the markets that we know a little bit more and where we have some easier access. We have boots on the grounds. But also, as I'm looking at it, I want to make sure we're in those sub-markets that are desirable and that are seeing the growth that we talked about. Do you do this with like tertiary markets at all? Or? Um, we try to stay at least in secondary markets. So the secondary. Cincinnati MSA, Indianapolis MSA, you know, we're in San Antonio, Jacksonville, Florida. So not necessarily the big New Yorks, uh, the Miamis, they have, you know, Boston's, but trying to be in secondary markets where there's at least uh, 750,000 MSA population and up. Okay. So for somebody that was investing in tertiary markets, in a lot of the tertiary markets, you tend to have like a handful of major employers and they employ the vast majority of the population. And maybe this applies to secondary markets too. I'm not really sure. But what sort of risk factors should one be aware of when an employer in the market employs a vast number of people? I know in secondary markets too, especially like healthcare heavy markets, uh, you'll have like one healthcare system employing a vast majority of people. So maybe... Let me talk about that. Like, what, what are the risk factors there and, and how can you learn more about the employer to kind of gauge, um, I guess, gauge the overall risk of that employer potentially downsizing or pulling out? Brandon, that's a great question. And I think in primary, secondary and tertiary markets, you absolutely want to understand the employer diversification, right? You want to understand that job diversity because of what you're talking about. And it's not just one employer. Sometimes it's industry. So take, for instance, I used to live in Detroit. We started talking about that. Well, guess what happened in 2008, 2009 when the auto industry you know, crashed? The entire city kind of crashed alongside with it. So you have to be careful if the market is overly reliant upon one industry. Oil and gas has done that in the past to Houston. You know, The tourism industry has done that to Vegas. So you want to really be careful if your city or your market is overly reliant upon one industry, the way we define overly reliant is if 25% or more of the jobs are in one industry in that market. So with that said, if you are in a market where either there's a heavy reliance on one industry or even a single employer, a couple of things you want to do is really start to dig deep in what's happening with that employer or that, that industry. In this case, if it's a single employer, Uh, For me, what I would want to do is I would start with learning a little bit more about what's happening with that employer. Uh, If it's a public company, which I imagine most of them are, you can go to their website, you can pull up their financials, and I would actually read. Uh, You don't have to read everything, but you can read the executive summary. Sometimes they have investor calls. And I would look at all that and understand what are they seeing as threats? Are they growing? Are they expanding? Are they opening offices or facilities? Or are they closing? Are they shrinking? Are they getting smaller? You know, what is their plan? What's the state of their business? And pay attention to that. And I think if you understand what's happening with that business locally, then you can start to see how they're going to expand. You talked about the healthcare services industry. Well, if it's a hospital, take a look. Are they expanding? Are they opening a new wing of their hospital? 
or are they looking to relocate to a smaller facility? So are they hiring doctors? Are they hiring nurses? So really understand what's happening with that employer. And if you're going to be overly reliant on that, you really need to stay close to that. You need to watch and monitor that business, the laws, the different happenings that may impact that employer or that industry on an ongoing basis. Because ultimately, you don't want to be the last investor holding a property in a market or a city that's going down because of an employer left. Sounds like a lot of work. Sounds like a lot of work <laughs> to get all of this. You know, we, we have some clients that, uh, you know, we'll send them a tax return and you know, five minutes later, they're sending a message back saying, looks great, ready to file. And it's like, you know, 400 page tax. Return. Like, <laughs> okay. Maybe you should take a couple days and uh, sift through it. But, uh, you know, I imagine the vast majority of people are not doing this level of due diligence on their properties. So what are some resources or tools or, or something that these folks can kind of go to? And maybe we're not going to get the deep dive analysis that one should do, but we'll get pretty close. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things, right? If you're buying a single family rental, do you need to go to this level of research? Probably not. You know, buy in the neighborhood that you're comfortable with and call it a day. Um, the likely scenario is if you like the area, someone else is probably going to like it for the same reasons that you like it. So you don't have to overthink and overanalyze every single aspect of it. You know, house hacking is a strategy we use to get started. And one of the best things about that is you buy in an area where you would actually want to live. And that way, you don't have to necessarily dig into all the research aspects of it. You know why you want to live in that area. It's probably because it's close to transportation. It's close to the grocery store. uh, You know, it's uh, great community fillings, good schools, whatever, right? So you pick those same things and you go. Now, if you're buying larger properties or you're investing larger properties, for us, now we can't play with it. We have to understand those numbers a bit more specifically. Um, And anytime we're investing with other people's money, we want to be more careful and make sure we understand the market. So a lot of people look for population and job growth just so they can kind of shortcut. So they don't have to do all the research. They just know, hey, that's a good market is growing. Okay, cool. But if you're looking for specific places to find these kind of data points or to find this information, one I'll tell you to go to is city-data.com or I think it's I think it's .com, uh, or it might be .org, but you can check that out. And they have a ton of information on any market from male-female mix to population growth to median income to how many people drive, how many cars they have, all that kind of stuff. So you can look at a lot of that information there. And they also do a uh, historical view. So they'll look at today as well as going back to the 2010 census. So that's a great resource to check out. Um, If you want to go to census.gov, you can. It's actually a bit complex for most people when you actually go to the website. But I would say any market you're looking at, just start with the market um, and go from there and kind of work backwards. If you're looking at multifamily, a lot of the big brokerage firms will have a listing. So Marcus and Millichap puts out an annual report each year with the top multifamily markets. You can check that out. There are about two or three others that have a kind of nationalist. IRR has a, a great list that they put out with the top multifamily markets. And they just list out what they like about the markets, which ones are growing, what activity they're seeing. So you can use those things to get a general sense of what's happening. Those are all great resources. And I know that when I was originally looking for uh, the, the market that I invested in, um, which was Jacksonville, Florida, these are all resources we came across from the Marcus and Millichat reports to the IRR uh, website, those research reports on those areas. And the one aspect that I'm always questioning uh, whenever looking at a market is that oversupply. And I believe Sam Zell talks about that as well, um, is knowing when you're going to reach that point when the market's going to be oversupplied. And that's when you know you have to kind of like watch out for that market. 
Um, and I know you mentioned that too a little bit before. Is there anything specific you look out for when it comes to to that part, making sure that the market's not going to be oversupplied? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to look at the rent trends and you definitely want to look at, you know, permits and how many new buildings are coming to the market. Essentially, we're talking about supply and demand. So you want to understand supply and, um, you know, how quickly those properties are being absorbed. So the net absorption rate is something you want to look at as well. Um, you know, for us, our strategy is really to not have to worry completely on that because we're focusing on more class B and class C assets for your listeners. Essentially what that means are these are a little bit older than new construction properties, um, still great quality assets. C is probably a little bit older, uh, doesn't have all of the bells and whistles that the newer properties have, but it's more workforce housing or young professionals, young families, young couples. So it's not really competing with a lot of the new construction that's coming out. The new stuff is primarily all luxury class A product. Uh, so for us, many of the folks we're renting to would never be able to afford those types of properties anyway. So they're a little less impacted by that new supply that comes onto the market. Uh, so we look at a lot of those factors, but it's absolutely something you need to look at. Now, I will say that there is potential risk for a couple of things. One is that if you have a lot of new supply come on the market and there's not enough new renters to take on those new apartments, then what ends up happening is you know, those new apartments, they have to give concessions or their vacancy starts to increase. And as that happens, the overall rents tend to come down. And if their rents come down, it starts to have a bit of a trickle-down impact. Because if you can rent a brand new class A luxury uh, apartment for $2,000, then you know, you're not going to pay you know, $1,700 to rent something that is 30 years old. So there's a bit of a gap and a bit of a trickle-down that may be impacted there that you need to watch out for. But other than that, you know, I think that a lot of times you don't necessarily see the impact quite as strong when it comes to the new development because they're not necessarily competing for the same renter. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And that's, uh, that's a great insight there. And um, just shifting gears a little bit, we do have to ask some accounting and, and tax questions, of course. Uh, so, you know, we know you're, you're an investor yourself and you built a portfolio. How do you handle the accounting aspects of your business? Uh, I do not. <laughs> that's step number one. So, I'm fortunate that my wife is a CPA, but even with that, you know, I think for a lot of people and for your listeners in particular, I think it's really important to understand real estate taxes and, you know, doing your taxes for real estate is extremely complex. And unless you're working with a professional who essentially is only focused on real estate taxes, you're probably going to leave some opportunities on the table because most CPAs, even investment CPAs, they just don't understand the tax laws when it comes to real estate. So we have folks that we work with who are focused specifically on real estate, some focused only on syndications, some focused on some of our smaller properties in our portfolio. But we focus and work with them. We kind of tell them, hey, here's where we're at this year. Here's what we're looking to do. Here's kind of um, our situation. And they will try to give us advice on how to structure things or, hey, you may want to think about refinancing or selling, or instead of doing this, think about that. Or if you're looking at 1031, they may give you thoughts on whether or not you should do that. Um, we did a cost segregation on one of our properties recently. So, you know, that has impact where it's great, you know, initially when you take that bonus depreciation, but there are implications when you get ready to exit. So we talked to them about all of those different things to make sure we're aligned from a tax strategy perspective of 
what we're doing, but then also when and where we have investors, we understand how that may impact our investors in their own personal situations. That's amazing. And I couldn't have said it better myself. You definitely need to be working with professionals um, who understand the real estate space. Now, is there any particular tax strategy uh, that sticks out to you as your favorite or the one that had the most impact for you that uh, just you know, happens to be your favorite? Yeah, I want to answer that, but I, I just I want to double down on what we just talked about. I don't care that your brother is a great CPA. I don't care that you've been working with the same CPA for 10 years. Uh, if you're going to invest in real estate and you're going to start building a portfolio, you need to get a real estate CPA. I'm telling you, there are strategies where you start talking to CPAs that aren't really active in real estate and they'll tell you, oh, you can't do that or you know, just stuff that they just don't know. They don't sit there and read this stuff. They're not working in it every day. And I would just heavily implore your listeners, if you are investing in real estate, at a minimum, have a consultation with a real estate CPA because you want to make sure that they're going to take advantage of everything, not just from the property, but your own personal tax situation. So with that said, and part of the reason I preface that is one of the things we love is doing a cost segregation analysis to take advantage of bonus depreciation. Now for commercial properties, obviously really all properties, there's a certain depreciation you can take. Typically 27 and a half years is, you guys are the accountants, so you tell me, but <laughs> 27 and a half years is what you can take. Uh, what bonus depreciation allows you to do is accelerate the time frame of when you can take that. Now, the reason we like that strategy so much is for many of our investors, they are high net worth individuals. They may have passive income from owning a practice. Maybe they're lawyers, maybe they're doctors, uh, maybe they're business owners, or maybe they're just great stock investors and are getting these amazing distributions from their stock investments. Well, what happens with the bonus depreciation and allowing us to take more of that year one is that usually uh, we'll show a paper loss year one. And what happens with our investors is we get to pass that along to our investors. So even though they made a return on their investment, they're able to show a paper loss and use those losses to offset against some of their other passive income gains. So it's a phenomenal strategy that a lot of syndicators use, but it's a great strategy that I think anyone who's looking to invest passively should think about because it's a great opportunity to take advantage, especially if you have other passive income in your portfolio. And to kind of put some numbers behind what you're saying there, so we, we work with a lot of syndications, we work with a lot of uh, funds on the GP side, so we work with all the general partners, we did the accounting, finance, work with the investors, uh, help them with tax strategies and all that. We also work on the other side with all the high net worth folks, we, we help them with understanding how their uh, investments are going to impact them, the K-1s and all that stuff, how to invest, solo phone K, self-directed IA, personal name. But to put some numbers behind what you're saying, um, if you buy a $10 million property, first, if you do a cost second a multifamily property, you can generally expect to allocate 20 to 30% of the purchase price to components with a useful life of less than 20 years, so the five, seven, and 15-year components. And that's important because that's the amount that you can use 100% bonus depreciation on. So if you buy a $10 million property and you uh, you, you allocate 30% of that to uh, components with a useful life of less than 20 years, you're looking at a $3 million write-off. Now, if it took you $3.5 million as a capital raise to acquire that property, then your investors are getting back $3 million out of their $3.5 million investment. So you know, most of our clients, at least 2018 when these laws were enacted, you know, they're making $100,000 investments into these syndications. And that first year K-1 is showing an $80,000, $90,000, $95,000 passive loss. 
that's been passed to them that they can then utilize against their other passive income, passive gains, or, or if they're a real estate professional with other sorts of activities, they potentially utilize the passive loss there as well. So yeah, definitely a really good strategy and uh, hopefully putting some numbers behind it, shed some light on how it, how it works as a limited partner. So John, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, 100% bonus appreciation is always really powerful. A question we ask all of our guests, you know, what's your favorite piece of tech or your favorite mobile app that you're currently using in your business? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, I will tell you one thing that we're using right now is uh, PipeDrive. And it's a serum system. It has a mobile component and uh, it's more of a... The desktop works a little bit better because it has uh, it's more features and it's easier for me to, to navigate. But uh, I like PipeDrive a lot. You know, anytime you're talking about working with uh, a lot of investors and having a lot of conversations and meeting brokers and different vendors and all of that, um, it's really important to kind of stay on top of who they are and being able to have a database. And then also the SEC wants to see that, you know, they know that you have a relationship with these people. So it kind of gives us a way to track all the relationships, all the people that we meet and um, track all that into one CRM system. Awesome. Awesome. So what would be the best way if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or want to get in contact with you? What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, a couple of things. You can check out the podcast. It's called Target Market Insights. We talk to investors uh, and really we talk to them about marketing and multifamily. So we started the show talking about market research and finding the best place to invest. We've really expanded to be more about the marketing solutions holistically that you need to have success in multifamily. So you can check out Target Market Insights anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, and then you can shoot me an email as well. Um, John at kasmancapital.com. Uh, it's a great place to reach me. All right, awesome. Well, thanks, John, for coming to the show today and sharing uh, your insights on how to find markets and what your favorite tax strategy was. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. So uh, we're here for the debrief section. As promised, this is episode 60. And uh, we just had the episode with John Kasman. He's from Target Market Insights. That's his podcast. And we were discussing uh, finding a, a market to invest in. And uh, I must say that he did an excellent job on the podcast. So on this debrief section, we're just going to be giving our insights onto it. And the one thing that I have to say about finding a market, and it's, it's from my mentor, um, is not only is, is everything that we discussed on the podcast very important, but it's also, is it a market where you actually want to visit? Is it a market that's actually plausible for you to visit as the investor? And uh, let's just say you're investing. For me, I live in New York, for example. Does it make sense for me to go invest in some tertiary market in Indiana, you know, halfway across the country, where I have to get to the airport in New York, then hop on a two or three hour flight to Indiana, then hop in a car for another hour and a half to drive to the property? You know, what are the odds of me actually going to visit that uh, location often? And it might be low. So just something else to take into consideration when looking for a market. Yeah, I definitely think it's an important consideration. So some people will tell you, don't invest in a market that you wouldn't live in. I think that's probably taking it a little bit too far, but I like that kind of gut check. Don't invest in a market that you're not willing to go and visit. Uh, because if you are, then you're, you're really no better off than investing your money in some other sort of asset class. Uh, you're just not going to pay enough attention to it. You're not going to give it the time and care that the asset needs to really make it operate efficiently. And I think that we see this a lot with our clients, or not necessarily, I don't, I don't know about our clients, but with investors that invest in like the turnkey areas, you know, out in the Midwest. Not to say that those areas are bad. We have clients that do very well there, but they're also more actively managing the properties. They're conducting site visits. They're doing their due diligence. And, uh, you know, we just... We see a lot of people invest in those areas and then not make the money that was promised to them 
but at the same time, they're not really willing, or maybe they're just not even aware of the due diligence that needs to go into the property to actually make it perform at the level that it needs to. And, you know, Jason kind of mentioned submarkets, being aware of submarkets. I think that that can even go down to like a very localized level, like your neighborhood, you know, block by block. I, I know I used to live in Baltimore. Baltimore was literally block by block. So a submarket could be the next block over. And I think that what are you, what are you saying about submarkets? You know, like the, the overall market looks great, but what about the submarket in and of itself? Like, the actual street that you're investing on, what are the metrics there? What, what are the economics there? Um, and I think that what happens is a lot of the folks that, you know, invest silent scene, they don't really go into that level of detail and they find out too late. No, absolutely. You know, something that, that brings up a good uh, question. One of the biggest things that got me into real estate was the fact that my grandmother's property and my great uncle who lived across the street from each other, uh, they lived on this block that was literally you know, a half a block, I'm talking about a two or three minute walk away from uh, the Long Island Railroad in New York, well, in this town called Bethpage. So that was prime real estate. That one block, the location of that one property was literally prime real estate around the block from that was uh, the village of Bethpage, an entire shopping center that had everything you need from a laundromat, restaurants, a big supermarket. And the thing is, you know, that town's, you know, a decent size. A property across that town may not have been as prime, I guess you could say, as prime real estate as that one location. And you wouldn't know that unless you're looking at that submarket of that one area. So definitely agree that submarkets could have a big impact on the investment itself, for sure. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I invest in tertiary markets. I know that quite a few of our clients invest in tertiary markets. And in tertiary markets, you'll find that. It is a little more block by block. It's a little more street by street. And the level of due diligence that you have to do be successful in those markets increases a little bit. You have to drive the neighborhood. You need to do a little more research. If you see the laundromats and all the food chains and all that stuff, stop in and ask them how business is doing. Uh, you know, you, you just have to kind of be a little more detailed so you can really understand what is driving the local economy. One resource that I wanted to throw out there for everybody and I've written on this before. I think I wrote an article on Bigger Pockets. It was like I don't know, 2016 or 2017, but it's basically how do you invest at a distance? How do you, how do you invest in full-time working person with zero time on your hands? How can you pull the trigger on an investment out of state? Because a lot of a lot of people are, you know, they're in New York City, they're in like Utah, they're like New York City, or they're in California, they're earning a lot of money, but they don't have a lot of time to dedicate to flying around and checking out all these properties. So one of the resources that I walked readers through during that article was something called the Comprehensive Annual Financial Report. It's CAFR, C-A-F-R for short. So if you were to Google C-A-F-R dash like your city name or the county name or whatever, um, what will happen is hopefully, most likely, the city's Comprehensive Annual Financial Report will pop up on Google and you'll be able to click through it. And it's a PDF. It's audited by professional accountants, CPAs. So you'll be able to click on this thing and flip through it. And what it shows you is basically the financial performance of the city. But I like the demographic section of it. The demographic section kind of had a lot of the things that he was talking about, that Jason was talking about earlier today. Um, you can scroll down. There's different sections of it. One of them is the demographic part. And it's incredible how much detail is there. And when I was asking the question about you know, the tertiary markets and the top employers, well, the Comprehensive Annual Financial Report will tell you who the top employers are, and it'll tell you the percentage of the workforce that they employ. And so then your research all of a sudden becomes a heck of a lot easier when you're trying to figure out, 
is this a stable company? Is there any news with this company recently? There was a tertiary market that I was looking at relatively recently where the top employer employed 10% of the market and uh, decided to move its location to a different city. And, you know, if you're not aware of that, you're still investing in that city and not realizing that a year from now, that employer is leaving. And now you're going to have a glut of people without jobs, or they're going to be moving away because they're going to move with the company. You, you also got to take into consideration all of the side businesses that are generated by that one company, right? You, you know, if, if you have, let's, I don't know, let's just say a Microsoft, for instance, they move uh, a big office into a city, um, there's going to be you know, laundromats, restaurants, retail stores, all these ancillary businesses that are going to prop up to support that population. If that business is now gone, that big core business, that Microsoft, you know, your retail is going to suffer. Your offices around it are going to suffer. So you're going to have a lot, you know, a lot more of an impact uh, when that big company leaves. So it just, I guess, it goes to show the importance of the employment driving that market. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one correction that I, not really a correction, I knew what he was saying, but some people might listen to the podcast and say, oh, that's wrong. Um, when Jason was talking about the depreciation schedule for a commercial property. So what he was meaning, I believe, was uh, apartment buildings. And oftentimes when we're talking like if you're in the brokerage space or you're going through one of these, your lenders are going to talk. They're, they're going to call this big apartment building. They're going to call it a commercial building. But from the tax perspective, it doesn't matter how big the apartment building is. It's always considered residential. Even if you have a thousand unit property, it's still considered a residential property. And that is depreciated over 27 and a half years. The commercial property is depreciated over 39 years. The commercial property is going to be like warehouses, offices, that type of thing, not apartment buildings. So he was right, and he was he was going down the right path. I just wanted to clarify that for anybody that might be scratching their head. Absolutely. So now we're going to move into the Q&A section of the podcast. And just as a reminder, you can drop your own question, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can live on the air here, is by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com backslash podcast. Again, that's www.therealestatecpa.com backslash podcast. Drop your question in the box over there. Um, So the one question we have today, well, two questions is from Leo. Leo asks, firstly, how do you see your real estate investors expense their cell phone bill? Um, And he follows that question up with, if you're mostly a passive investor and only speak to your property manager a few times per month, is that still an eligible expense? So we just kick off that first question. How do you see most real estate investors expense their cell phone bill? That's generally going to be based on a percentage of how often they use their cell phone for business. So for instance, if you're using your cell phone 75% for business, you're going to be able to expense 75% of your cell phone bill. If you're using it 10% for business, you're going to be able to use it uh, 10%. Uh, we're going to be able to expense 10% of your cell phone bill. Yeah. And how do you track it, right? That's the next question everybody always asks. How do you track it? Well, technically you should track the minutes used. Now that's a little bit tough to do. So what we'll tell our clients to do is, generally speaking, get your cell phone bill every single month, write on it how many minutes you use for business, and that typically goes okay. What we don't want to see is at the end of the year, you handing us a cell phone bill, an annual cell phone bill of like $1,200, and then telling us that 65% was used for business, because then we're going to ask, well, how'd you get to 65%? So make sure that you're doing this on an ongoing basis and not just not just at the end of the year. Yeah, and I think these days with smartphones, you could look in the settings and it'll tell you perhaps how much you use certain applications and what have you. And you could obviously look at uh, your call times uh, with various calls. So that could be all ways you could get back into that number. 
you know, as for the second piece, you know, if you're mostly passive and you only speak to your property a few times a month, is that still eligible? Uh, yeah, I think it depends uh, largely on the type of business you have and, uh, you know, whether you're in the business of investing or you're just, you know, having uh, checking in on what they're doing. But I believe that would be also. Well, yeah, I was just going to mm-hmm. say what, what you're looking at here is there are the passive activity rules. And if you are making management decisions, even if you are managing somebody, or somebody's doing everything for you. If you're making the management decisions, then you can qualify. You can you can deduct business expenses against that against that uh, passive income stream or passive loss stream in some cases. So for anybody that has a property manager, um, nine times out of ten, you will be able to deduct your business expenses, meaning that you'll be able to deduct that cell phone bill. But if you are like a limited partner in a syndication then you're not actively participating in that management activity. You have actually given away all of your voting rights. That's what a limited partner does. And in exchange for this equity stake in this LLC, you give them money and they go and play with your money however they would like. Hopefully they play well with money. Um, but you are just an investor at that point. So you cannot associated with your limited partnership uh, investments. Is that right, Tom? You got anything to add to that? Yeah, no, no, that's very accurate and a great distinction um, right there. So just to recap on that, uh, that if you are you know, in charge making decisions, so your general partner, say you're in a partnership or you own the real estate directly and you ultimately make the final say, um, then you're going to be able to write off the expenses, you know, such as your cell phone bill and what what else have you. If you're just a limited partner, uh, by definition, as a limited partner, you're not material participating in the property. You're not making those decisions, and therefore, you're simply an investor. Um, and as an investor, you're not going to to be able to deduct uh, th- those cell phone costs or, or related expenses uh, for the sheer fact that you're not, you know, actively in a business. You're just an investor at that point. Could have said it better. All right. So that concludes this week's Q&A section. I look forward to hearing all of your guys' questions. Uh, like I said, we're going to do our best to answer them on the air. Again, www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcast. And thank you for listening. Before we go, we want to remind you about our virtual workshops. They are not a webinar, but rather our virtual workshops are a highly interactive experience that puts you in a room with our tax strategists as well as fellow real estate investors. We will discuss a topic for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open the room up for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to those real estate tax and accounting questions that you've been dying to ask, while at the same time discovering what other real estate investors are asking. You could sign up for our virtual workshops by visiting therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshop or by following the link in the show notes below. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.